Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. By. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the IGM Financial fourth quarter 2021 analyst call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and 0. I would now like to turn the conference over to Keith Potter, Senior Vice President Finance. Please go ahead. Thank you, Ariel, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to IGM Financial's 2021 fourth quarter earnings call. Joining me on the call today are James O'Sullivan, President and CEO of IGM Financial, Damon Murchison, President and CEO of IG Wealth Management, Barry McInerney, President and CEO of McKinsey Investments, and Luke Gould, Executive Vice President and CFO of IGM Financial. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to the cautions concerning forward-looking state statements on slide three of the presentation. Slide four summarizes non-IFRS financial measures used in this material. And on slide five, we provide a list of documents that are available to the public on our website related to the fourth quarter results for IGM Financial. I will now turn it over to James O'Sullivan. Well, thank you, Keith, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to start the call, if I may, by reviewing uh, a few 2021 highlights. We've discussed on previous calls that this management team is here to build and grow our businesses and to grow our earnings. Today, I'm very pleased to report that we accomplished both during 2021. Record high reported earnings per share of $4.08, represents a meaningful breakout from historical profitability levels. Adjusted EPS of $4.05 increased 27% year-over-year, with strong growth from all three of our segments and across all of our businesses. Assets under management and advisement ended the year up 15%, reaching a record high $277 billion. Contributing to the growth of AUMNA were strong client investment returns of 11.9%, as well as record high net flows of $8.7 billion. Each of IG Wealth, IPC, and McKenzie achieved strong net inflows. During May of 2021, Wealth Simple announced equity offerings as part of a financing round that resulted in roughly a $900 million revaluation of IGM's equity interest in the company. And we recently announced that we will be acquiring Power Corporation of Canada's equity interest in China AMC, doubling McKenzie's current equity stake to 27.8%. We're proud of the results we've collectively accomplished for our clients and our shareholders during 2021. And so on behalf of the leadership team across IGM, I'd like to sincerely thank our employees, consultants, and advisors 
for their extraordinary efforts this past year and into 2022. And before getting into the results for the quarter, uh, I'll take us to slide eight where I'll share a bit about our outlook and priorities for 2022. In terms of outlook, last year was clearly extraordinary for the asset and wealth management industries in Canada. Many records were broken. We have observed industry net sales slow during the final month of 2021, and January industry sales look similar. That said, Canadians still have a significant sum of money on the sidelines in cash and low-yielding financial instruments. Based on these observations, I fully expect to see an attractive, yet perhaps more moderate operating environment as we head into 2022. And we have significant momentum in our companies that has continued into January. I've spoken about our commitment to delivering earnings growth many times in the past. We believe we delivered on that during 2021, and we intend to continue to deliver. Luke will walk you through the details of where we are investing and managing costs across our businesses. I'd also like to reiterate our capital allocation priorities. Our first priority is to continue investing in our businesses to position each of them for long-term growth and success. This comes through both organic growth investments and exploring business development opportunities with a focus on further building our wealth platforms in Canada and investing in our global asset management capabilities. We also view share buybacks as an important capital allocation priority as we head into 2022. Yesterday, we announced our intention to file an NCIB this quarter, and we expect share repurchases under the planned NCIB to, at a minimum, offset the dilutive impact of stock options. Finally, we will consider increasing our common dividend over time as earnings continue to grow and our payout ratio on cash earnings approaches 60%. Turning to slide nine, for the fourth quarter of 2021, adjusted EPS of $1.08 is up 26% from adjusted EPS of 86 cents last year. Reported EPS of $1.11 includes a $7.7 million after-tax gain relating to an earnout on the sale of personal capital to Empower. This amount is incremental to the $31.4 million gain that was recorded during the third quarter of 2020. AUM&A grew by 4.5% during the fourth quarter, driven by strong client investment returns and total net flows of $1.2 billion. I want to point out the RSP season has started off strong. We were pleased to report January 2022 investment fund net sales of $1.2 billion and total net flows of $1.1 billion last week. I'm also proud to announce that IGM has once again been recognized as one of Corporate Night's global 100 most sustainable corporations. This is our third consecutive year being a part of the top 100, 
and IGM Financial is ranked as the top-rated capital markets and asset management company globally and the top financial services firm in North America. Turning to slide 10, markets were strong in Q4 with significant returns in North America and Europe and stable overall returns in fixed income. Overall, IGM average client investment returns were positive 4.3% in the quarter, and as I said, 11.9% for the full year 2021. The new year has brought with it <clears throat> some market volatility, not unexpected, with most major equity indices and fixed income indices correcting for the month of January. Turning to slide 11 on the industry operating environment, Q4 Long-term mutual fund net sales were $12.1 billion for the industry overall and $5.9 billion for industry asset management peers. 2021 overall was an extraordinary year for the fund industry in terms of net sales and asset growth. Turning to slide 12 on IGM's results for the fourth quarter, average AUM&A was up 1.7% sequentially, and adjusted EPS increased 26% compared to last year. Slide 13 demonstrates how adjusted net earnings from each and every one of our businesses, IG Wealth, IPC, and McKenzie, along with our proportionate share of affiliates, Great West LifeCo, China AMC, and Northleaf, all increased meaningfully during both the fourth quarter and full year 2021. Slide 14 outlines Q4 and full year net flows for our operating companies. Each of IG, IPC, and McKenzie reported strong net flows for the year and the fourth quarter. Within the institutional SMA category, I'd note the $576 million of net redemptions for Q4 was isolated to a single client. And uh, with that, I will turn it over to Damon and then Barry to discuss IG Wealth Management and McKenzie's results. Thank you, James. Turn to slide 16 in IG Wealth Management's fourth quarter highlights. We did the quarter with AUA of $119.6 billion an increase of 4.9% during the quarter, driven by strong Q4 net inflows of a billion dollars and client investment returns of 4.1%. We also experienced strong net sales in the IGM products of 493 million in the fourth quarter and $2.2 billion for the full year. We continue to make strides in both the high net worth and mass affluent market segments where inflows from newly acquired clients over $500,000 increased just shy of 50% during 2021. IG had terrific results in the quarter and for the full year 2021, and underpinning this success was our continued execution of our strategy and the investments we're making in the business. During the fourth quarter, we launched a new digital advisor application to deliver tailored client investment proposals with integrated compliance management, making our advisors more competitive in the marketplace and helping us address the new client focus reform requirements. I'll touch on this in greater detail in a coming slide. And we were very proud to be recognized as one of Canada's top 100 employers, which was based on several factors, including work atmosphere, overall benefits, training, communications, and community involvement. Turn to slide 17. 
you can see the record high results for the fourth quarter and full year 2021. Our strong momentum continued in January, where we had another record month with net inflows of $326 million and net sales into IGM managed products of $424 million. January marked the 14th consecutive month of positive net inflows for IG Wealth and 13 consecutive months of positive net sales into IGM products. The 12 month trailing line chart on the right shows a continued upward trajectory in both net sales and net flows. Turn to slide 18. Q4 2021 record high growth inflows were up 17% year over year. On the line chart, you'll see our trailing 12 month net flows rate has now reached 3.3%. Our client net inflows of approximately $1 billion are broken down in more detail in the net flows table where you can see significant increase in net sales in the IGM products, which were $493 million during the fourth quarter. Slide 19 demonstrates a very strong year in new client acquisition, and in particular, clients over $500,000. We had $1.7 billion in growth inflows for newly acquired clients with over $500,000, which represents 49% increase year over year and a 400% increase over the past five years. On the right-hand chart, you can see the trend of how we are executing on our increased focus on the mass affluent and high net worth segments relative to the mass market segments. Turn to slide 20. Like last quarter, you'll see significant improvements in advisor productivity for both our new advisors and more experienced advisor practices. We're seeing our investments over the past several years pay off, and we continue to highlight some initiatives that we attribute to the increased productivity. Lastly, on slide 21, new in the fourth quarter is the launch of a digital application, Cap Intel, to deliver tailored client investment proposals. Cap Intel provides our advisors access to a powerful investment analysis and proposal tool. Portfolio comparisons and product information is integrated with our Salesforce-powered CRM to quickly and transparently deliver on-demand analysis and generate compliant and compelling investment proposals to our clients. Cap Intel also helps monitor investment funds and equity holdings on an ongoing basis and notifies our advisors through their CRM of any significant changes to the investments that should be reviewed. For example, material changes reports, change in risk category, fund mergers, and corporate actions. We're on the leading edge with this technology solution. Cap Intel integrates with our leading advisor tools, enabling our advisors to efficiently address the expanded Know Your Client know your product and suitability requirements under the new client focus reform. And most importantly, spend more time with their clients focused on their financial planning needs, which we believe will only accelerate our ability to drive new client acquisition, increase share of wallet, and advisor recruitment. Now I'll turn over to Barry McInerney to talk, discuss McKenzie's results. Thank you, Damon, and good morning, everyone. I'll take us to slide 23 to review McKenzie's Q4 results. Total AUM as of December 31, 2021, reached a record high of $210.3 billion, up 3.4% during the quarter with continued strong net sales and investment returns. Fourth quarter investment fund net sales of $757 million were the second best on record. For the full year 2021, McKenzie reported a record high $5.4 billion investment fund net sales. Q4 marked our 21st consecutive quarter of positive retail investment fund net sales. And for 2022, we look forward to delivering continued strong results, building on recent momentum. 
We've entered into a new long-term strategic partnership with Primerica, where McKinsey will serve as one of two exclusive investment solution providers to this fast-growing Canadian distributor. As part of the partnership, McKinsey plans to launch a new suite of funds in the coming months that will be designed to address the specific needs of Primerica advisors and their clients. Late last month, we introduced the first ever retail interval fund in Canada, combining McKenzie's leading retail product expertise with Northleaf's robust private credit capabilities. I'll expand on this on a coming slide. Lastly, in early January, McKenzie announced the acquisition of Power Corporation of Canada's 13.9% equity interest in China AMC. We believe this investment enhances IGM's growth profile and provides leading China asset management industry exposure within a public vehicle. The transaction will also simplify IGM and the power group and strengthen distribution opportunities for McKinsey in China as we become recognized as one of the leading foreign investors in the China asset management industry. Turn to slide 24, where we outline a trended history of McKinsey's net flows. 2021 was a year that will no doubt go down in the record books as a unique and special period in the Canadian investment fund industry. I already spoke to McKenzie's record-breaking investment fund net sales last year, and in terms of gross sales, 2021 was also an all-time high for McKenzie when we exclude historical sales into the Quadras group of funds, which was sold to Candle Life in the very, at the very end of 2020. And as you can see in the middle chart on the left, McKenzie's fourth quarter investment fund net flows of $757 million also stand out compared to past years. It was our second best Q4 on record, second only to the extraordinary fourth quarter of 2020. In January, McKenzie reported solid investment fund net inflows of $817 million, which includes $675 million of inflows from Wellsimple during the month. Excluding these amounts, investment fund net sales of $142 million we're still the second best January in our history. Slide 25 summarizes McKenzie's Q4 2021 operating results. Retail investment fund net flows of $653 million were the second best on record and are well above the levels seen in 2019. McKenzie continues to gain market share as demonstrated by our 9% long-term investment fund net sales rate as of December 31st. Within institutional SMA net sales, we had one client redeem $667 million during Q2 2021. I remind you that this business is lumpy, and we, have, uh, we had $2 billion of net inflows during 2020, and overall $300 million of net redemptions during 2021. And 51% of McKenzie's AUM rated by Morningstar were in four or five star funds in line with last quarter and 15 of our top 20 mutual funds were rated four or five stars for Series F. Slide 26 shows our retail mutual fund AUM, investment performance, and net sales across our investment boutiques. Our growth-oriented teams, global equity boutiques, and fixed income group continue to deliver strong relative performance. As well, the Greenship Boutique's flagship fund achieved its three-year track record during the fourth quarter and earned its first five-star rating. Our strong Q4 2021 retail net sales were spread across a number of investment boutiques, including the growth, blue water, fixed income, and sustainable teams. Looking ahead to 2022, we've seen products across a variety of investment boutiques attracting flows, 
with our managed solutions, growth, blue water, green chip, and global equity and income teams generating strong net inflows during the month of January. Also during January, we expanded our product shelf with two new funds managed by the Blue Water team. Slide 27 highlights the growth catalysts we've identified at McKenzie that are reshaping the global asset management industry. I'd like to spend a moment recapping select highlights in 2021 in these important areas. We continue to invest in and expand our sustainable investing capabilities which attracted net inflows of over $1 billion in the year. The new McKenzie Norfleet Interval Fund I spoke to earlier is the latest addition to our growing suite of accessible alternatives for retail financial advisors and their clients. While offering memorandum or OM products are typically only available to accredited investors, this new 81-102 non-redeemable investment fund will not have such restrictions. This flexibility, combined with a relatively low minimum investment requirement, delivers unprecedented access for Canadian retail investors to institutional private credit investments, a major step forward in our goal to democratize private markets for retail investors in Canada. Interval funds have been part of the U.S. market for quite some time, though recent demand for illiquid investment strategies has driven interval fund assets in the U.S. to grow by over six-fold since 2014. And finally, our ETF business continues to grow at a rapid pace and is the sixth largest in Canada in terms of AUM. Continuing on slide 28, the growth in the Chinese mutual fund industry has continued with long-term mutual funds growing 34% over the last 12 months and 10.4% in the fourth quarter. Net sales drove most of this growth with a new rather with a net sales rate of roughly 25% over the past year. You can see net sales in Q4 alone were 1.2 trillion renminbi. China AMC is a consistent top contender across all major asset classes and ranks second overall in terms of long-term mutual fund assets under management in China. And lastly, slide 29 highlights Northleaf Capital Partners' 19.5 billion in assets under management across their private equity, private credit, and infrastructure offerings. In 2021, Northleaf grew AUM by 34%, driven by strong fundraising of $1.2 billion during the fourth quarter and $5.5 billion for the year. I'll now turn the call over to Luke. Great. Thanks, Barry. Good morning, everybody. Moving to page 31, I just highlight here that AUM and A increased by 4.8% in the period, driven by investment returns and strong net sales activity. We've circled the full year overall net sales rate and investment return rate. I'd also note that AUMA declined by about 2% in January to 270.7 billion. And we're up slightly from this in February. Where we are right now in average assets in Q1, we're looking pretty close to Q4. Going to page 32, I just remarked that it was a very clean quarter. On the right, you can see that consolidated growth and net fee rates are stable at 124 basis points and 87 basis points respectively. And unit costs as well are stable and obviously impacted by seasonality in Q4. I'd also remind that the acquisition of GLC occurred December 31st of 2020, and that's the reason for the change in these rates in Q1. Slide 33 has IGM's consolidated statement of earnings. We have three highlights on this slide. First, we're pleased to have come in with operations and support and business development expenses about $6 million better than our previous guidance. We've highlighted this in the first bullet point that these full-year expenses were up 2.2% relative to last year, and that compares to earlier guidance of 
Second, we've highlighted point two that we had an extra 800,000 average diluted shares outstanding as dilutions from in-the-money options increased due to share price increases in the period. As James mentioned, we are pleased to announce our normal course issuer bid yesterday, which we believe is a very good use of capital at this time and will be accreted to earnings and cash flow. Lastly, our last 12-month trailing dividend payout rate is currently 67%, and as we indicated last quarter, we would consider dividend increases at levels closer to 60%. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Go to page 34, you can see IG Wealth's fee rates and expense rates as basis points of their respective drivers on the right. I'll let remark on this page is the change in advisory fees in Q4 reflected a much more normal level at 0.8 basis point decline and was driven by having a greater share of high net worth clientele in the business. I'd remind that in Q3, the change was a bit higher as a result of the average client account balances increasing significantly by 4% in Q3 relative to Q2, which made many clients eligible for lower rates on their fee schedules. Going forward, we'd expect about 0.5 basis point decline per quarter if we keep on bringing on high net worth clientele at the rate that we have been. As you move to page 35, you can see IG Wealth's income statement. Net earnings increased by 20% relative to last year. The only item I want to mark on here is you'll see a pullout on other financial planning revenues and related other product commissions on the right. You'll remember that these revenues consist largely of revenue from our mortgage and insurance product lines, and we have a pullout table that you can see. I just note that when you look at this revenue line, it was down relative to Q3 and last year, and you can see in the table that was as a result of lower mortgage income. As you look at the disclosure of mortgage income within our MDNA, you'll see that this was a result of lower gains on sale and fair value adjustments, and these two items were impacted by interest rate increases in the period. This was non-recurring and was worth about $2 million in the quarter versus Q3. When you look at the table, you also see insurance and other revenues at $32.9 million are up nicely in the quarter from last year, as are the associated product commissions. Going to page 36, we wanted to highlight that we've made some disclosure enhancements in the period to profile McKinsey's subadvisory relationship with Canada Life. On the chart on the left, you can see that we've segmented the institutional SMA line between the $52.8 billion Canada Life relationship and the $7.9 billion in other institutional assets. Beside the chart, we've indicated the key metrics upon which we assess performance of these respective asset categories. For our subadvised relationships to IGM's wealth management firms and our subadvised relationship to Canada Life, we measure McKinsey's share of their AUM, which you can see at the bottom are 69.9% and 49.2% respectively. On the right, we've included within our supplemental disclosures the assets under management within Candlelight's individual and group channels. Great West LifeCo has, uh, has made disclosure enhancements uh, regularly, and they publish these disclosures quarterly, along with the net sales activity to these channels. I'd also note that in these disclosures, we've also identified the revenue associated with this Candlelight relationship. I'd also note we're very pleased with the relationship with subadvised assets increasing 11.9% since the GLC acquisition and a slight increase in McKinsey's share of assets. Moving to page 37, 
you can see McKenzie's fee rates by client type, and you can see that we've reflected the enhanced disclosure of the candlelight relationship here. I note that weight average fees are very stable, and when you look at the top right, you can see on the third party, which is substantially retail, that, that fees are up very slightly in the quarter because of the strength in retail. On page 38, McKenzie's statement of income, I just highlight that McKenzie's net earnings are up 60% from last year. Most of this improvement is as a result of the significant organic growth in the retail business. Average assets in retail are 25% year over year, and this reflects the net sales activity as well as investment returns in the year. You can see here that revenues are up 25.5%, just like the increase in the retail business. And due to the operating leverage and financial leverage inherited in the business, 25% increase in revenue uh, translates into 60% growth in earnings. Move to page 39. We've also enhanced our disclosures on China asset management this quarter, with quarterly reporting of China AMC's AUM broken down by component. You saw earlier from Barry the significant industry net sales activity into long-term funds in China in the quarter. China MC had a very strong quarter, and you can see her long-term mutual fund assets increased by 14% in the quarter as a result of the strong net sales activity and market share gains. On the right, we present IGM's share of China MC earnings. We highlight that on the strength of the growth in long-term fund assets and the operating leverage in the business, China MC's net earnings, excluding one-time unfavorable tax adjustment, increased by 24% from Q3's level to $21 million. We've called out this $4 million tax adjustment on the, on the chart on the right, and I, I would remind, normalizing for this, China MC's earnings are up 24% in the quarter and 80% in the last year. Move to slide 40. We highlight the earnings growth by company, and we highlight the relevant values of the strategic investments. We've highlighted a few of the items that are affected by the acquisition of China MC from our parent and the partial disposition of our stake in Great West LifeCo our parent company, and those transactions are on track to close in the second quarter. Under Wealth Simple and Portage, you'll see that we have a mark of $1.291 billion on these investments. We've assessed the value of Wealth Simple at year-end, and we've kept the mark consistent with the value achieved in the May 2021 fundraising. The, uh, in the appendix, we've uh, provided the usual disclosures on Wealth Simple's business, and, and I just note the company's been performing very well. The AUM is up over 50% since the last fundraising, and the number of clients is also up 50% since the last fundraising. Moving to page 41, you can see the sum of the parts view of IGM. Using the January 31st, 2022 share price and deducting off what we view as conservative values for our strategic investments implies a PE on IG and McKenzie of 6.4 times. We've circled these items, and right below the 6.4, we've put these multiples compared to the average multiples for global wealth and asset management peers of 14.3 times and 12.1 times respectively. We see considerable value in IGM shares, particularly in relation to the strong earnings growth put on and the outlook for future growth. And as mentioned, we're very pleased to have announced our NCIB yesterday. Moving to page 42, you can see guidance on our operations and support and business development expenses in 2022. Point one highlights Again, that we came in slightly better than our guidance in 2021. Under point two, you can see we're guidance at 3% increase to fund growth initiatives, plus up to 2% for post-pandemic normalization activities. We've detailed in the sub-bullet the type of activities that this includes and would include conferences, travel and entertainment, and return to office expenses. 
Like each of you, we're going to navigate the year and actively manage these activities. We just want to provide you with some context on the maximum level that could come on during the period. Points three and four outline the growth initiatives we're investing in IG and McKenzie within the 3%. Before commenting on this, I did want to acknowledge that like everybody else, we're not immune to inflationary pressures in many parts of our business. I'd note that we've managed this inflation through efficiencies in our operations. We also have slightly lower pension expense in the period. This 3% is entirely growth initiatives to drive revenues and includes many items that bring clear incremental near-term revenues, like the setup of our multi-year product and distribution relationship with Primerica for McKinsey, and like investments in advanced financial planning capabilities at IG. I'd reiterate, as Barry said, we're very excited for our partnership with Primerica. They distribute around $16 billion in mutual funds, and their business has been growing very nicely. In the bottom half of the page, we provide the expense guidance by line and by company. Here I'd make a few points. First, we've indicated that retail wholesale and commissions within McKinsey's business development line are anchored to $2.75 billion in retail net sales, and we provide the sensitivity for every $1 billion change in net sales and you can see further information on this in the appendix. This $2.75 billion in mutual fund net sales would be a 5% net sales rate, which we believe is conservative, and we would expect in any circumstance to continue to gain noticeable market share in the period. Second, in the case of IPC, most of the increase relates to amortization and other costs related to the purchases of advisor practices that we'd expect to do in the period. Should these purchases occur, they come with earnings accretion right away and you'll be able to see amortization of these prospective purchases within our disclosures. The last comment I'd make is when it comes to the travel and entertainment and conference expenses that may occur in the period, this would be in the business development lines. That concludes my comment. We'll open it up for a question, Gerald. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We'll pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Gary Ho of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Great, thanks, and, uh, and good morning. Um, just the first question, not sure if it's for Damon or Luke, just on the advisory fees, um, 101.8 uh, basis point, that's down 3.3 two basis point year over year, and you're guiding to, um, I think, half a basis point decline per quarter. Uh, I know you're acquiring high net worth clients with lower fees. Um, that, that transition is still happening. So when you look at the gross sales that came through in Q4, can you give us an indicator of kind of what those advisory fees rate will be? Just wanted to see kind of longer term where, where, where that could, could trend. Yeah, sure. Hi, Gary. Luke, I'll take that one. Yeah, so the 0.5 basis points, the two factors is really uh, bring on clients who have lower fee rates um, in the high net worth categories. And you can see the slide that Damon presented showing the success we've had there. The other driver is going to be investment returns, like you saw in Q3, that as client account balances rise, that we have fee schedules for every client. And, and every single day, people let people fall into the relevant categories. So 0.5 basis points a quarter is, is our best outlook for, uh, for, for 2022. And, uh, and we'll expect to track track there and keep you updated every single quarter on how we're doing. Right, but you can, can you provide what the Q4, the new gross uh, sales um, that you onboarded um, generated? 
I, I don't have that handy, Gary. And, and again, it's it's a, a separate fee rate for each and every uh, client based upon on where their their asset levels are, and those rates change daily. So it's not as simple as saying we brought these clients on and here's here's the fees that that they attracted, but but we will give guidance on the weighted average and uh, and with the, the extent to which we're hiring high, or uh, acquiring high net worth right now, it, it's about 0.5 basis points of what is what we'd expect in terms of quarterly change. Got it. And then Luke, while I uh, have you here, just on the expense guidance here, um, in particular the, the biz dev expense, and you referenced kind of slide 45 in the appendix, um, and that's very helpful. So can you explain kind of the drivers a bit more? Is it more gross sales or net sales? You know, when I compare the slide versus last year's sensitivity, it just seems like the correlation in terms of percentages at least has been magnified a little bit. Um, meaning, you know, lower growth drives a higher biz dev expense. Um, I was under the impression that these hurdles would be reset higher uh, in 22. Great question, Greg. So, yeah, turning to page 45. So, as Barry uh, highlighted, we, we raise the bar every single year on the wholesaling commissions, and wholesaling commissions is, is a majority of this, uh, this line item, but, not, uh, but, but it's a very small majority of the line. The, uh, the other thing that we've done is this line is more variable to, to net sales as opposed to gross. And so we've given those sensitivities there. I'd also highlight when it comes to uh, those kind of post-pandemic transition costs like travel and entertainment, conferences, et cetera, they're in this line as well. So what you're seeing here with our uh, guidance, the sales commissions has come down. We've given the sensitivity um, to, of the sales commissions to different uh, sales levels. And we do have the travel and entertainment and conference costs coming in. And as mentioned, we're going to navigate the year, and we've given a maximum that may come in um, as we navigate the pandemic. So, Luke, if I paraphrase that correctly, if I look at that chart, the middle bar that you have, although the 2.75 billion net sales is lower than the 3.8, um, that should be, by, in and of itself, a lower comp number. By offsetting that is zero travel and entertainment um, expectations for for the year. That's why it's driving exactly up. exactly Gary. The wholesaling commissions has come down, and and there's other costs post pandemic related that have come up. Exactly. Okay, and as Got mentioned, th those expenses may not be incurred, but we did want to give guidance of the maximum that that we might incur as we navigate the pandemic. Okay, that's that's helpful. And then maybe just one more question for me, uh, James high level um, on your comments on earnings earnings growth um, given my last two questions just you know some um, fee compression on the advisory side and then you have the expense growth at five percent you know if markets kind of hum along where we are kind of no significant gains like last year where are you most optimistic about um, driving that that earnings higher yeah thanks Gary um, you know as I sit here today I'm I'm, I'm quite positive on the year uh, I believe we're going to have a strong year. And January counts. And look, January's off to a great start, isn't it, with $1.1 in uh, in flows. So look, my expectation would be for IG Wealth to uh, not just kind of hold its own from here, but in fact to strengthen from here in terms, uh, in terms of net flows. On the McKenzie side, clearly there's room for, for some moderation across the industry from, from 2021 levels, and so we're, we are planning for that. And I, I, I you know, reiterate what Luke said. We, we will be disciplined, I promise you, uh, in expense growth. Um, I've shared every quarter now our uh, North Star, 
as I call it, which is that the path to a higher share price for IGM Financial is through higher earnings. We are collectively committed uh, to that, Gary. And then, look, my, my sense would be this overall. I mean, we have, I think we provide rich disclosures. This is a relatively uh, transparent business. I, I think your models will, will sort of guide you well, but, and, and I think they will align with, with my qualitative words of, uh, of a strong year uh, lies ahead for IGM Financial. Okay, great. Thanks, thanks, James. Uh, those are my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good morning. Um, James, the first question was um, on M&A. If something came up that was uh, an opportunity of size, how do you think about how much leverage you'd feel comfortable putting on the business? That's a good question. I would, um, I would feel very comfortable at two times. And I think pro forma China AMC, we're at roughly 1.35 times. So there's clearly a capacity for leverage. And I would not altogether rule out uh, going somewhat higher, depending on the nature of the opportunity, the, the profile of the free cash flows and our confidence in them. Um, but, you know, as I've said in the past, I mean, I, look, I, I think our highest priority uh, you know, from a capital uh, management perspective, is to properly position these businesses for, for long-term success. And so, you know, in that regard, uh, strategic M&A is, is our first priority, and I would view uh, debt capacity, surplus, cap uh, surplus capital, and our, uh, our remaining stake in 22 million-odd shares in Great West Life as uh, potential sources of funding as we, uh, as we uh, further uh, position these businesses for success. Thanks. Um, Barry, I had a question um, just on the, uh, the Primerica relationship. Can you clarify, is it open architecture um, and, and you and another asset manager have some sort of preferred access or is it just the two of you on the shelf? And then the second part of that question is, um, you know, the other asset manager, I think, has had a long-term preferred relationship with Primerica. So what aspirations do you have in terms of being able to gain material share uh, from that other asset manager who, you know, as I mentioned, I think has been an incumbent at Primerica for decades? Yeah, great question. Thanks. So the um, you, you, you could expect going forward for Primerica that the, um, the fund options would be driven principally by the, the two partners, us and, and AGF. Um, and so, um, as Luke mentioned, it's a, uh, it's a sizable platform, actually, 16 billion in mutual funds, 4 billion in SEG, and I believe last year there were a billion net inflows on the mutual fund side. So they're growing at a nice um, niche market in the um, kind of lower uh, mass affluent area. So we're really uh, um, encouraged by it and excited by it. And um, look, you know, as you know, we have experienced McKinsey at other strategic partners. Uh, we, Laurentian's been a long-standing partnership for us, so we know how to do this and and develop um, uh, you know branded products for them, uh, multi-asset along the spectrum and, and single-asset as well. 
and it gives the prime American advisors choice now, right? So they have two uh, leading investment firms, um, which is, uh, I think, the intention of Prime America to, uh, to provide that. So um, we, we, if you look at this, the size of Prime America and the fact that going forward the options would be driven principally by the two uh, asset management companies, and we have, have very high aspirations. Um, all boats rise with the tide, right, <laughs> in terms of uh, AUM penetration. So you probably should look for this relationship for McKenzie with Prime America to probably after four or five years exceed that of Laurentian, uh, just because of the size and the, and the, the growth uh, trajectory of, um, of Prime America. So very exciting. Um, they're, um, we already know them well. We, we already have a billion on their platform, McKenzie Mutual Fund. So we know them very well over the years. And great culture, great uh, partner, and uh, we'll be launching these uh, new funds, both parties, um, in um, the May-June timeframe. Great, thanks. And maybe one, if I can take in one last question, um, maybe for, for Damon. On slide 19, um, the, the flows from clients with less than 100,000, is that legacy clients that are investing or is it, you know, taking in new clients that have that less than 100,000? And if it's, you know, maybe more so the latter, is that then a strategy of targeting high net worth but still willing to attract perhaps some, I guess, less affluent clients that um, the company has, you know, sometimes attracted or targeted in the past? Yeah, Jeff, it's, uh, it's, it's a number of, of factors that would drive this, uh, drive this member. First off, it is, um, it is us bringing on new clients, and uh, a lot of times new clients, even though they might be mass support and high net worth, they want to try you out. So they're not going to give you all their money, and they'll start with, uh, with a little bit of money and, and get to know you and your, your team. Uh, the second is it would be some existing clients that we have that are already in that segment giving us some uh, some money. Um, so there is some of that. And the third one is that we bring on and recruit new advisors. And uh, new advisors want to bring their entire book over. And some of their book is in that segment. So that's something that we're going to continue to uh, to drive. And we're going to continue to to grow here, uh, but at a far less rate than we would at the, the massive bullet and the high net worth segments. Thank you. Our next question comes from Graham Riding of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, Luke, maybe I'll start with you. Just, um, I know you don't give expense guidance uh, more than sort of one year out, but I just want to make sure I'm sort of uh, understanding the the two percent piece that's uh, you flagged as sort of post-pandemic normalization. Should we interpret that that you know when we look into 2023 that this two percent piece may not repeat? And this is arguably, you know, sort of a reset of your expenses that ha that have been uh, missing over the past two years. Yeah, right, right on, Graham. You've got it. That that's what it is. Is the transition back to it back to normal basically, and would be one time. Okay, great. Um, jumping to your, your um, valuation of China MC on slide 41, I think you're flagging at just over $1.3 billion um, based off of uh, a multiple. But last month, you know, when you announced the transa transaction, it, you paid uh, your agreeing to pay $1.15 billion. So how do we square that up? <clears throat> I guess, you know, does that suggest that PowerCorp might have left, uh, you know, almost a couple hundred million on the table through this transaction? Yeah, no. That the the, the, uh, the value established for the deal was was fair between the parties. Uh, the last public uh, comp or last pu comp we do have is is 17.5 times next 12 months, 
And so this is really applying that next 12 months. And as the company continues to grow, the, the, the value is going to continue to increase. And, and that's what you can see here is just basically marking marking to market the value for, for the growth and earnings that's happened. I, I would also highlight the value on page 41 is obviously understated. This reflects uh, 17.5 times analyst estimates for next year. And that's before you know publishing the results that the company's actually put on and the outlook for the future that, that, that we have right now. Okay, understood. Um, Damon, I'll, I'll I'll jump to you if I could. Um, just looking at your slide 17, but you know, I, I guess my question is: Are you still seeing evidence of AUA that's being brought in house? It's ultimately translating into flows into the investment funds. Is that the message you're trying to get across on slide 17? Uh, yes. No. It uh, that's exactly the message we're we're trying to get across. Um, you know, at the end of the day. This business is uh, is growing. The momentum is accelerating. Uh, there's evidence that, that while the while there's the industry may be slowing down, we're, we're speeding up. And the the drivers of it are all the, the four aspects that you would look for in a wealth business. So number one, we're bringing on new clients, and a lot of them are in our our targeted segments of mass affluent and high net worth. We're increasing our share of wallet of our existing clients. There's evidence that that Canadians are consolidating their advisors. Um, for a long time, they've diversified their advisors, but they're consolidating them. And we're net, net benefactors of that. And we're recruiting advisors that wanna be truly the best financial planners in their in their community. And we're strengthening our relationships with our existing clients, which is leading to our redemption rates where they are. So all of those things allow us to, to really bring in new money to the organization and with all of the, the advancements we've made on our platform, on our pricing and our products, our advisors really are, are, are doing what's in the best interest of, uh, of their clients and looking at their portfolios and figuring out where IG products fit in their overall plan and doing what's in the best interest of them. And in doing so, we have just a huge opportunity to drive flow and drive net sales. Perfect, that's it for me, thank you. Our next question comes from Julia Gould of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi, um, a few questions. Um, with respect to McKenzie, what is the strategy to further penetrate the wealth simple channel and uh, could you potentially uh, size the market opportunity there? Oh, hi, it's, it's Beer. I'll take that great question, by the way. Um, so, you know, wealth simple has been become Gradually, for McKenzie, a, a nice strategic partner, and, and um, as you know, they embarked on on launching some Wealth Simple branded ETFs about a year and a half ago. Uh, we, we are solely manufacturing those for the, for Wealth Simple. Those are uh, we're, the, we're the investment manager technically, so there are there are ETFs in our in our flows, but uh, Wealth Simple branded, and so we launched the fourth one last month in January, the Green Bond. So. Um, they decide if and when they wanted to manufacture more of their own um, their own uh, well simple uh, branded product, and, um, and we're their preferred provider in that regard. And so that those four funds now, I, I believe, are approximately 1.3 billion or so in AUM, growing very nicely with nice flows every day, every week, which is good for liquidity for ETFs as well. Then also, uh, as you noted in our, our uh, remarks uh, last month in January, they also uh, made a significant inflow into a McKenzie branded ETF. And so, um, 
we're, uh, we're here to help them and partner with them, obviously, and um, they probably have a three to four preferred partners they use on ETFs, and uh, you, as Luke may mention in slides in the back, well, simple. The growth trajectory is, is uh, very, very strong. So uh, we're very pleased to uh, continue to partner with them. Uh, we don't really put a um, uh, figure in terms of what percentage of the shelf we might end up having. It's, that's their decision, um, um, but certainly, Right now, uh, we have a strong foothold on their platform. They're growing very fast. Uh, we're working well together, and we'd expect um, that growth to continue for, for us uh, for, for the coming years. Great, thank you. And uh, moving on to China AMC, um, do you have any indication of what the uh, potential dividend will look like in Q1? And uh, separately, can you explain the uh, $4 million um, tax adjustment? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. It's Luke. So, uh, so on the dividend, we expect the the payout rate to be to be similar to to last year. So we uh, we will uh, we will know that when uh, when declared. So I, I don't want to give guidance, but I would say you could you could extrapolate last 12 month earnings from 2020 and the dividend we earned then to, to, to last 12 months at 2021, and and assume the payout rate will be the same. And uh, on the tax, yeah, that was basically it was a uh, an adjustment for a, for a change in sales tax that uh, that occurred on the, on the distribution of mutual funds in in China and so it was a one time uh, one time amount that was basically a true up of a, of a position and uh, and that that was worth 4 million dollars that's IGM's share of it so, so that was a one time item all right and um so um is that what's driving uh, that uh, huge step up in the earnings or is, is that kind of new run run rate yeah, that's the run rate. So we put in that extraordinary item just to just to disclose how the business was actually uh, traveling. And so what what you can see there in the period is long-term mutual fund assets were up 14% in the quarter from Q3. Uh, revenues you could you could think of as being up in line with that. And uh, and because of the operating leverage in the business, our earnings were up 24% relative to Q3. So so that was all the strength of of the long-term fund asset growth during the quarter. And, and again, that was 14% growth in long-term fund assets just in the quarter, all driven by by net, net sale activity. So it's a really good growth in China. All right, thank you. Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then one. Our next question comes from Scott Chan of Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Oh, good morning. Um, maybe I'll start with the last um Last thoughts on, on on China AMC, just in terms of the earnings trajectory, and, and you kind of talked about uh, a, you know a good amount to, to to go forward and the significant operating leverage in the business. But um, you know when markets and assets are up, it's fine. But if it goes the other direction, um, is it is it fair to assume there's more negative operating leverage on the downside versus at your current business? If, if you kind of look at the forward earnings potential. Yeah, good question, Scott. So yeah, we would we would expect to see that operating leverage just like uh, just like you see McKenzie. Uh, I'd take you back to page 28, and I'd uh, I'd highlight we've we've put this as industry uh, net flows in China. As Barry said, the industry has been net selling at at 25% of assets per year. And so when you look at the growth on page 28 in long-term fund assets in that country, it, importantly, it's been net flows that have been driving that growth, not investment returns. And so when you look in the fourth quarter's growth, all of that was, was net sales growth. So certainly there is, there's operating leverage that's going to be impacted by financial markets. 
but right now there's a lot of momentum with net contributions happening to uh, to, to mutual funds in that country. Okay. And then uh, going back to the Canada Life and the new disclosure, um, it, it seems like your uh, proportionate share on the shelf has been increasing modestly uh, and is now below 50%. Is 50% the right number in that channel, or is it, or is it something that can increase uh, over time, similar to uh, what we see at IG? Uh, it's Barry. I mean, Luke might chime in as well. Good, great question. So, um, again, things going very well with Canada Life early days, and um, I might add that you know, it's such a competitive advantage, we believe, for McKinsey to have these, uh, we call them uh, sisters and cousins that we can manage money for because it allows us, to obviously, to create more scale and and um, stronger financial footing and ability to attract and retain talent and, and launch products and greater seed capital, et cetera. So it's, we're really fortunate to have IG, and now Can Life is two significant uh, clients and partners for McKinsey. Um, clearly, it's, it's, it's their decision how they, how they use us. Um, we're quite excited uh, for three reasons. One is the, the retirement business, as we when we announced this uh, transaction initially with GLC coming into McKinsey, um, we we McKinsey did, we had very de minimis, de minimis exposure to the uh, group retirement business in Canada. Now we do via um, via Can Life. And second of all, you you've probably heard from Can Life. They're really leaning in on their wealth business and. Uh, so obviously we sub subsidize uh, quite a bit for them in the wealth area, and so as they grow, we'll grow, and then obviously the the seg funds and the balance sheet. So all told, it just allows diversifies our portfolio and diversifies our channels. And uh, but the percentage is, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, with uh, uh, with all of our clients, sibling or otherwise, we we McKenzie work hard, produce good results, and bring new ideas, right, uh, in terms of innovation and growth catalysts and where we think the industry is going and more importantly where advisors and their client needs uh, may find themselves uh, same as institutional investors. So that relationship is, is very robust in exchange of ideas and best practices and um, and you know we'll just the percentage just, just lands naturally where depending on um, their business strategy and but um, you know the, the partnership is early days is couldn't be stronger. Thank you. Thanks. And then, Barry, maybe one last question uh, for you, just uh, going back to the Primerica uh, Laurentian Bank um, agreement. And, you know, I, I think that's been several, several years on, on that front. Um, I wanted to maybe size up the opportunity. You talked about getting to LB's level in four to five years. Um, and what is LB's level right now? And how is that, um, you know, how has that trended over time? The partnership. Yeah, thank you. Great, great question. And I, I, I failed to say, of course, that our relationship with Laurentia could be stronger. It's just fantastic. Uh, and her whole team. And we're about four billion now. Um, McKenzie's AUM with Laurentian, uh, four billion. And so uh, that started out for us to, you know, obviously it's zero market share to work with them a partnership to get us up to a sort of a steady state level on their shelf. So that probably took, uh, you know, four, three, four, five years to get there. Um, so and that's growing. Uh, we had a nice year last year with Laurentian, and more to come this year. And, and um, you know, obviously, wealth is important for their multi-channel strategy. But Prime America, you know, pure wealth play, you know, a bigger wealth business than Laurentian, and, and, and growing as Laurentian is. But Prime America has been putting out some heavy assets lately. So um, net net, you probably you should see probably you know after four or five years. Uh, and after 10 years, obviously, uh, the primary relationship will be much bigger. And, the, and the, the fees are good for us 
think of them somewhere between a retail and institutional client, uh, just like Laurentian. So, uh, you know, it's a good uh, win-win for both parties. And um, we're just keen to get going. And <laughs> so uh, we, we wanted to be, uh, we didn't want to uh, trumpet it too much because, uh, you know, this is, uh, um, you know, for them, uh, we want to work hard for them and, and gain their trust and, and gain uh, market share and traction on their shelf, as, as with our, our partner, AGF. And so, uh, but look forward to probably to match the $4 billion-ish in, you know, three to four years, surpass Laurentian, simply because of the size of the wealth business at Primerica. Okay. And we're open to other strategic partners. It's a unique model that we think McKinsey and Skillset we have now to do these types of relationships. And just a follow-up, when does that partnership start between the, uh, the, the agreement start officially? Uh, mid-year or is it something yeah, that... Yeah, the agreement's all signed and we're already working, we're already working hard at McKinsey with technology and hiring, getting uh, sales support in place and launching the, building the product. So we'll be look for it for mid-year at the latest, probably June-ish for the, uh, the, the flows to come in because the, the funds, the new model will be launched in June, July. But everything's okay. signed in agreement just we're already working in partnership with them, getting it all ready over the next three, four months. Got it. Great news. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Yeah. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Potter for any closing remarks. Uh, thank you, Ariel. Um, at IGM, we're really looking forward to continued strong momentum across our businesses in 2022. Uh, we thank you for joining the call today and uh, hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, Ariel, with that, uh, we'll close out the call. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.